Hello and welcome back to the Astroflex Simulation Podcast, where we navigate the digital world through art culture. Today I am joined by, I'm going to call him a landmark guest. I mean, this is one of my biggest, most anticipated guests I've had uh, ever since the show started. Mr. Charles Haywood, the sole proprietor of the Worthy House blog, or is it a joint effort? Uh, The Worthy House was originally conceived as at least potentially a group blog. But eventually, and there are, in fact, four or five guest posts from, from early on, say 2017. But eventually, my massive ego just got the better of me. And yeah. I, I'm not doing that. Well, listen, um, I put you in very elite company. You are one of the few guys writing right now that I just I don't miss. And I try to read your backlog, too. But I, <laughs> I'm, only like, <laughs> I'm only like a third of the, way, of the way through that. I don't know if I'll make it. But um, it's great stuff, and you've given your pitch before, but let's give it real quick to my listeners before we get to the content, because you call yourself a book reviewer, but there's a caveat to that. Right, and The Worthy House started as a way for me to review books and fix them in my mind, because I don't have a particularly good memory, unlike my father, who was a history professor and had a phenomenal memory. I don't have a good memory, and so I started reading books, and but occasionally, uh, I started, obviously, reading books, I started writing book reviews to fix the books in my mind and my wife suggested I put them on Goodreads and Amazon and I did that and then my wife suggested I have a blog and I said no one wants to read my book reviews and and apparently they do want to read my book reviews but as it has developed over time the book reviews are in essence a vehicle for my own thought masquerading as book reviews though to a greater or lesser extent depending on the book I, I actually do discuss the book itself so you get both I mean it's a twofer uh, the the point of it is primarily, though, to develop my own thinking, as well as still, honestly, to fix the books in my memory, which is very successful. At. And it, well, and it helps guys like me, too, because as I've mentioned a couple of times, um, you know, this is my side project. I'm very busy with a career and a family life that has nothing to do with the stuff I talk about here. This is my outlet for the things I'm interested kind of, uh, you know, my personal time. And I just don't have the time to read all the books that I want to read. Um, unfortunately. And your your blog is just perfect for that because you give in-depth book reviews and you have your own breadth of knowledge, uh, historical and political and political scientific knowledge to give really unparalleled insight into the content. And it's all the stuff online people and you know listeners to my show want to read, the stuff Curtis Yarvin is steeped in, the books that you've heard the names of um, a million times, but maybe never picked up. I think the first review I ever read from you was about uh, maybe Burnham. I think it was the managerial revolution, mm-hmm. but I might have. You've talked I've about Yarvin. I have several Burnham ones. The oldest yeah. one was actually Suicide of the West, way back in like 2016. Managerial revolution was this year. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I just discovered you this year. So um, you're a big Anton fan. I'm also a big Anton fan. I'm a big Anton fan. Uh, yeah. I'm a more mixed mind about Yarvin, as I've said before. I, I very vastly, wildly, in my opinions about Yarvin, but that is perhaps a different tor- different story. Thank you, I, by the way. Uh, yeah, um, of course. Um, and so, so please keep them coming. All right, good, good. I mentioned Yarvin because um, a lot of the stuff. I mean, he's wildly popular, whether you like him or not. Um, he's been on this show, which was extremely gracious of him. He he came on my show and, and inter- let me interview him before the show even released. Yes, he's was... very good about talking to people, um, you know, all sorts of sorts of people. And, you know, it's not that I dislike Yervin, so I think a lot of 
what he has to say is is someone divorced from reality. I think we can we can incorporate him into the content of what we talk about today. Um, but yeah, uh, so you know, I could go on about this. So I definitely check out the Worthy House. I will link it uh, on my Substack. Now, your most recent article is why I wanted you to come on today. And in your most recent article, you gave me a shout out, which is one of my biggest honors ever since starting this podcast. So to 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 have one of my intellectual idols think my argument was worthy of uh, reviewing, even though you... <laughs> I disagreed, but it was definitely... <laughs> well, no, it's not. Uh, you did disagree, which is fine, which is fine. But um, you sort of dismissed it out of hand at one point. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But can we give uh, the audience a little bit of context of why you were addressing me, why I was addressing you, and the and the things we were talking about going back and forth on? And then um, and then the bulk of the, the episode today will go through the major points of contention in your essay. We'll go through the whole essay, but I really rely on to dig down on the things we disagree on because I think broadly me and you agree, and hopefully that comes across through the discussion. Uh, but some of the minutia I think is really interesting that we disagree on, and uh, maybe we can we could come to some sort of yeah. synthesis. As I said before we actually started recording, I think this is very helpful to kind of expand both of our sets of knowledge and thinking and our portfolio of views. So let's do it. All right. So the name of the essay, right, is On the Fragility of the Regime. Of the current regime. Of the current regime. And it's in response to, well, there's a series of series of things that you've it's been writing. You, right. I mean, I, I, I exactly. Write, exactly. I also write, uh, increasingly write, uh, mostly because my wife tells me to, what I call colloquially original pieces, which is a bit of a misnomer because, of course, all the pieces are original, uh, but th- this is something that's not uh, used, does not use a book as a springboard. Well, good, because I wanted to tie in a couple things that you did before this that that play in here, particularly your essay, which I think is called on, what was it, on the reality of the Caesar, where you talk about... I have on the future ascent of the Caesar. Yes, and that's the one. What to do when Caesar comes, which is a play on the Robert Conquest book, What to Do When the Russians Come, which is a 1980s book. Okay. Those are the two books that had all the things that I put into, or excuse me, those are the two essays that put all the things in my head um, because I broadly agree with you, but there was a couple things you said in those essays that really stuck in my mind that like I couldn't get past because I disagreed with you on. And then you started talking about them all on your really excellent discussion with Oren McIntyre, who's another uh, one of my major influences who's also been on the show um so i he's listened to your awesome. interview yeah he's quite awesome i listened to your interview and um i really wanted to be in the conversation so i just fired off an essay in response to you and i sent it to you and you um you know you gave mm-hmm. me the honor of reading it and revolver news actually linked to it as well and it's just called is the regime weak so um you know before we get into your essay on the weakness of the the current regime the two major things you talk about in this series of essays in the interview with McIntyre is you argue that the regime is fragile, correct? And you also argue that there's no counter elite current to the regime, but perhaps one will spring up. And then um, we will talk about the Caesar. I think we agree about Caesar, but let's get to that after we discuss, you know, the disagreements. So why don't you explain what you mean by uh, the, the elite, the counter elite and the regime and weakness versus yeah, we'll, start, we'll start with the first thing you mentioned which is fragility that is 
when people say the regime is weak, that can mean one of two things, not necessarily exclusive of the other, which is that the regime is weak because it is not powerful, and the weak regime is weak because it is fragile. Those are really distinct concepts. And I think few people would say that the regime, uh, which we'll define more precisely when we start talking about elites, that the regime is weak in the sense of not being powerful. The regime can actually, uh, to a great extent, exercise power still. That's not a, a regime that, that can't exercise any power at all is really not long for this world at all. And so that would really be a different argument if you said the regime lacked power. The fragility means that it can't withstand a crisis. And the and that's really, which necessarily, of course, means that when the crisis comes, its power will dissipate, thus kind of leading into the first set of conditions. So the two things are, are kind of linked. But what I'm talking about is regime fragility, which is the, hence the, the title of the, uh, of the piece. The, as far as the second point, which is elites, a lot of the question of whether the regime is fragile revolves around who is in charge of the regime and what those people's characteristics are and what their abilities are and what have you. And so therefore, both for that reason and in order to define the regime, you have to define elites. And I use Gaetano Mosca's definition of, uh, he doesn't use the term regime, but he basically says, uh, give or take, uh, and this is in Burnham's The, the Machiavellians, a book which uh, Yarvin has, has made popular again to his credit. Uh, so Burnham talks about Mosca, but Mosca was an early 20th century Italian political thinker who said that, in essence, that the ruling class of any society comprises approximately 20% of the people in that society, uh, 5% uh, roughly being the governing elite, that is the members of the ruling class participate directly in governance or to some extent indirectly, shading into the 15% of the total population who are the non-governing elite, people who are part of the ruling class but do not take a direct uh, part in, in governing. So when I say the regime, I mean more or less the 20% of America and also of the broader kind of American-dominated Western regime. You can get into that, those sub-definitions as well. But I mean basically 20% of Americans who are constitute the current ruling class because they constitute the current elites. Yes, yes. The Machiavellians. That was the book that I first found you because I was Googling that and your blog came up and I'm like, I think yep. I heard of this guy. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that. Okay. Well, the disagreement on the elites will come soon, but that's a that's a perfect uh, way to, to characterize it. Um, however, the weakness I, I did address in my essay weakness in the terms of their ability to assert their own power um mm -hmm. which i can't be held accountable for because my essay came before yours so i didn't know <laughs> i didn't know exactly you were using the the fragile definition however you know i've done a lot of thinking about it since then and i still think i disagree with you depending on on uh, the way you elaborate on that so this is like Fragility versus robustness, um, the ability to weather a crisis. And something you, you've talked about before with others, and you mentioned yourself too, is that like the regime can be strong, controlling a weak, fragile, or fractured society or culture. Okay, so when we talk about uh, cultural decline, we're not, that doesn't mean the regime is declining. Correct. Um, Civilizational decline, it's kind of broadly phrased. And I make this point in my. Essay, civilizational decline is distinct from all of these matters. I mean, yeah. 
some overlap in relation between the two, but as a kind of discussion matter, they're really distinct. Political yeah. matter, distinct. I wanted to make that clear because I think some civilizational decline points are probably going to have to come up because I want to ask you, what what would a crisis look like? What do you mean by it? What kind of crisis uh, would you see dissipating or dissolving the regime or tum- crum- uh, toppling it? Um, I mean, so the obvious, I can just off the cuff, I can think of three. Uh, but I mean, I can get, do this all night. So, uh, and, and this is not something I put in the essay, but uh, these things, uh, because it's not germane to the question of fragility or not. But the the obvious one is a uh, large scale economic crisis. The, I mean, yeah, this is again beyond the topic of the that particular essay, but most of my theory is, and this is not original to me, most of the Western economy is completely fake. You know, people trading fake money from hand to hand for fake jobs, doing fake things, enabling a massive class of parasites. Eventually, the music will stop. And so an economic crisis it would be the classic kind of crisis that tends to overthrow regimes. Because right now, people have no effort, no need or really any uh, you know, drive or requirement to rock the boat because they don't see that they can thereby improve their situation because they have Netflix and chill and they get they have a fake job with fake money. And yeah, okay, state costs choice went to the year ago, but hey, you know, so far it's still working out. Uh, when people can't feed themselves or they can't, more importantly, that mothers can't feed their children, then all the bets are off. And, and this is a recurring cycle throughout history. And that would not be shocking at all. That's the most likely, but you can imagine others, other uh, crises. I mean, one might be a, an actual pandemic as opposed to a, the, the fake, well, quasi fake pandemic we had that killed fat people and old people. Um, one that actually killed people who are, who are healthy um, at any relevant rate um, would be a, it would almost certainly be a extreme crisis for the regime. Or military crisis. I mean, when we decided we're going to go uh, try to prevent the Chinese from retaking Taiwan and 50,000 Americans are dead in the South China Sea, uh, that's, a, that's another kind of crisis. All of those would immediately result in the, in the, in the fracturing of the regime. Okay. Not immediately, but rapidly. Okay. Well, the most likely of those three, I think we would agree, is the economic crisis. I, th- I think you said that. Um, the military crisis, the, the pandemic one, I, I mean, I think we can skip that. I don't think, well, we're going to talk about COVID, right? But your scenario, I don't know how likely it is that like smallpox is going to break out again or the Black the black Plague. It's possible, but it's a little too Actually, hypothetical. Showing up, so. Yeah, it's a little too hypothetical for my taste. It's not, it's not unreasonable. Um, the military one, I also if you don't mind, think we can couch that. Uh, it is true that um, a military threat is a type of thing that topples regime. I don't see one coming, though. Do you? I mean, I don't see one on the horizon for America. No, I, I disagree with that. I mean, the military stuff isn't my thing. I mean, historical military stuff is, is one of my things, but it's mostly like what happened you know, at the Battle of Nicopolis in 1413 or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think it's clear that uh, it's possible, for example, we might get into a shooting war with the Russians uh, that uh, might not go our way. And uh, we might get into a shooting war with the Chinese, which would almost certainly not go our way. Um, or but do you think they would invade America, though? No, no. That's, but, that's but what I meant. We have to invade America. 50,000, the, the regime... The, much of what the regime does depends 
its ability to have power as opposed to fragility depends in large part upon its ability to cast the image, create the perception that it has power and can do things. When it, if it loses a war, then it, it, it's like the emperor's new clothes. Then, then all bets are off. It's not that the Chinese are going to come and overthrow the United States government. It's that the United States government, or more broadly the regime, would then lose all ability to implement its will to a degree vastly greater than it, than it lacks now. Okay, so how do you then account for what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, which I guess we could say has chipped away at the regime? Sure. But... Those things were extremely damaging to the regime's uh, you know, robustness, but not enough Americans died. And okay, okay. The, the regime's... I mean, plenty of Americans died, but they, you know, they were largely the kind of Americans who you're not allowed to, you know, they're basically young, white, lower class, lower middle class Americans who you're not allowed to celebrate or talk about the same kind of people who are killed by the uh, opioid epidemic, which is aided and abetted by the regime. And so the, uh, the, and also the ability of the regime to control what Anton calls the narrative using the megaphone was brought into play very aggressively there in order to try to tamp down people's dissatisfaction with our defeat in Iraq and Afghanistan. That that's not something you can keep doing successfully. The classic example of this is the is late communism, which I talk a, a fair bit about in a couple of a couple of my essays and I talk about obliquely in this essay, but the you, you could doing the same thing over and over as a as a fragile regime to tamp down dissent and unhappiness is a gives you diminishing returns. So the exact same thing happened again. It'll be much less successful, especially now with Twitter, which I know you want to get into as well. But with Twitter does have the ability to set the narrative. And of course, one of the many problems for the regime that Musk is opening up Twitter is that it reduces their ability to set the narrative. But if we lost, if we were actually defeated by China, like losing a carrier battle group, which we would be very rapidly, in my opinion. Um, the that would the regime just couldn't cover that up in any meaningful way. Well, I wonder if that would cause regime collapse. Um, one of my refrains is that the the regime has one playbook and they only ever use that one playbook. And there's like extremely predictable. They do the same thing over and over again, and uh, they it's just it's just baffling and it's just really pathetic to watch. Right, um, this is a type of riddleness that is the inability to be flexible is brittleness and not to yeah. hammer the same point repeatedly, but brittleness is a type of fragility. Yeah. And I agree with that. Now, um, you know, I, I hate to do this, but let's leave the military stuff aside because that's not really what I want to talk to you about. Um, I think I disagree, but whatever, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I want to talk about the economic crisis. Part two. Yeah. Part two. Exactly. Well, I'm hoping, I'm hoping we get a lot of good feedback and maybe people will tell us what they think, because yeah. I hear a lot of people say that we would, Trounce, trounce China in a in a war, yeah, but yeah. Um, the the economic I'll thing, the economic thing. Um, my first, very first thing my mind goes to when you say what you said was uh, two thousand eight. They weathered that crisis. It was it did a lot of damage. Um, it did hurt the regime a lot. We could argue that the the cascade effect on the regime was Donald Trump. Um, but of course it didn't topple the regime and almost did i guess with trump you could say that but uh they were able to weather the crisis in 
maybe ways that 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 leave a lot to be desired but uh they managed it well enough so uh, do you think and we can talk about the details if you want but my question is do you think that that example refutes your point at all or do you think that crisis wasn't nearly big enough i think a couple things i i don't think it refutes my point uh I, I think a little refutes my points which perhaps is a sign of overconfidence um it's the it wasn't big enough for starters um, it didn't affect people's the average person's day-to-day life uh, wasn't affected significantly, in part because it was managed, obviously. So, you know, managed through one-time methods, such as permanently reducing the interest rates to near zero, and they haven't changed that. That's not something you can do again, for example. But the um, uh, it, it wasn't nearly big enough. Uh, no, there was no, uh, I'm sorry, now I lost the, the thread of your, your question. It wasn't big enough or it... Uh, um, well, no, you basically addressed it, that I was asking if it wasn't big enough, A, and the the kind of rejoinder I was going to give you is that it didn't cause the regime to collapse because of the way they managed it. Um, and they managed... My other point was going to be that the... That, the uh, that was almost 20 years ago, or 15 years ago. The people running the regime back then were substantially more competent than the people running the regime now. Okay, you have a point. <laughs> diminution of abilities... Is significant. Yeah, but who um, are you referring to, though? Well, it, it, you have people like Ben Bernanke. Now, Ben yeah. Bernanke, you know, I, I, famously, I always quote Luigi Zingales, who is a University of Chicago business school professor uh, who has a blog called Capitalism. And Zingales is not a conservative. He's kind, kind of centrist. He's actually Italian by birth. But he, he had a book called Capitalism for the People, or A Capitalism for the People, in which he talked about the financial crisis, among other things. And and he quoted Bernanke as saying uh, in, I think, late 2007, that the world was going to end to President Bush at the time if he didn't d- come up with this uh, you know, bailout package for all these overextended banks. And Zingales said point, which I thought was very well put, and I've quoted several times, was Bernanke was right. The world was going to end. His world was going to end. His world of all his Goldman Sachs buddies and all those people you know, who, j- who just should have been wiped out. But Bernanke was still a competent person. Janet Yellen is not a competent person. You know, the other one of the points I made in my essay was I linked to the Obama, not the Obama, the uh, Biden cabinet. And I'm like, would you trust these people to be competent? And the answer is no, because they're all obviously clowns. Well, look, I, I wanted to systemically go through your article point for point. And <laughs> later on, um, the Janet Yellen thing came up, but let's let's get to it now real quick, because I named Janet Yellen as an example of someone that shows that there are still competent people. Not that I like her, not that I agree with her, but um, I think her record shows that she can manage the regime in the role she's been given in the way the regime wants it to be managed. And one of the reasons I said that um one of the reasons I think that is that she, to me, looks like she is just continuing the th- type of thing that Ben Bernanke was doing. I mean, that's that was why I thought that was because I thought she was like a, a, a successor in the mode of Ben Bernanke. And that's why she even got the job. I think that that's a misapprehension of Yellen. And I think that it goes back to your point earlier about the regime's playbook. Yes, I'm sure she was picked to to do that. But the fact is, that Janet Yellen, whenever I hear her say things, she obviously is not very intelligent. She says things that simply aren't very smart. 
Um, now, I haven't interviewed her her personally, but I do know that she got her PhD in 1974, I believe. Yeah. Um, a time when women were exalted and aggressively pursued. We must have women. Women must be pushed to the front. This was the you know the the height of there's not enough women. So almost certainly she's been an affirmative action pushover her entire life. And so I, I'm assuming that I haven't honestly spent a lot of time studying Janet Yellen. Uh, so I will admit that in this case, I could be underestimating her. But I will say that every time she says something, it sounds shockingly stupid. <laughs> um, again, maybe I'm just missing it. And maybe it's like a Jekyll and Hyde thing where behind closed doors, she turns into, you know, the second coming of Hayek or, or you know, Milton Friedman or something. Probably not. Or, or some other Gary Becker or some other Nobel Prize winner. But I'm pretty sure she's just a hack. And yes, I have no doubt that she was picked in order because in order to extend the regime's line that people like Bernanke started in 2008. But being a placeholder in the same playbook, it, it does not mean that you're as competent as the people who originated that playbook. Okay, that's a good point. I, I my take is slightly different, but it's in the <laughs> same it's in the same ballpark because when you say you you hear someone who sounds shockingly stupid, when I hear these people talk, I think I hear someone who's totally full of shit. Um, and as a regime uh, dissipates or dissolves or becomes more fragile, they of course fill their ranks with more and more sycophants because it's the only way that they can continue without addressing the problems they're creating is they have to have sycophants around them. But um, I don't I don't know enough about Yellen either to really dig down on her track record. But I do know that she kind of picked up the ball of the 2008 crisis after Bernanke and uh, during Obama. Um, I can't think of any other names, although all the few names that I can think of who were involved, they're all like bank CEOs and shit, you know. Um, yeah, and those people, I know I used to be a director of a publicly traded bank for complicated reasons, which is run by competent people, not that bank. But I've met a lot of bank people who are supposedly super important and smart, and they're not. They're dumb. And the, the I, I, Yellen is perhaps, you know, it, she might be the smartest member of the cabinet, but that likes being, that's like being the world's tallest midget. I mean, everyone else in the cabinet is clearly a total moron. I mean, I, I, maybe there's, I haven't gone through every single one, but. It, it, well, we'll get to a couple of them. I agree with <laughs> you. We only, we only have downhill to go after Yellen. I, I agree with that. But, uh, and again, I'm not a Yellen defender. I'm saying that she effectively carried out the regime's goal to weather the, the crisis, to, to manage the crisis. Well, maybe, um, you know, that, that's hindsight bias, right? The, 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 the crisis has been managed so far. That doesn't mean that she did it. Well, OK, so right, because you what you said just now, which I really appreciated, really appreciated. You said that um, they manage that crisis, but they could probably only do that once. That is a really good point, um, because the when I look at the last 25 years of American history, I see one manufactured crisis after another uh, 2000 and uh, well, Iraq and Afghanistan, which were just long drawn out, total debacles. I mean, every single person involved in both of those catastrophes should, I don't even want to say what should happen to them. They should definitely not have jobs. Um, and, and where do I go? Where do I go? I mean, uh, the, the opioid epidemic, totally manufactured, totally unnecessary. Um, COVID pandemic, if, if not the outbreak of the disease itself being manufactured, which side note, I think it was, but that's for another time. Yeah. The response was completely manufactured, which created this third biggest uh, economic crisis in American history. The second only to, well, third only, excuse me, to 2008. 
So all yeah. these things were, were manufactured. And just a side note, on the, I mean, you could argue that the COVID economic crisis was an example of a second economic crisis that was also weathered. And there's some truth to that. But I, but I read some statistic that, what is it, 80% of the dollars ever created have been created in the past two years or something. Yeah, it's I mean, insane. You can't futz with the interest rates anymore, so you print money. I and mean, eventually, this just isn't going to work anymore. Everybody knows this, but we'll see. Yeah, well, okay. So one of the things that's really like a, a fun, uh, you know, thought experiment for me to play that I'm, I'm like, it's like I'm like intellectually fisticuffed over it is like, it looks like their plan is to just keep doing that over and over again, controlling interest rates, printing more money, manufacturing crisis, taking over further control of the economy, which, by the way, I think is the ultimate long term goal. I think this is all coming to them trying to take over the economy, which they're clearly doing. Um so, so I wonder, I mean, is this just ramping up to a huge collapse? It probably is probably. reasonable to think so. Probably. I mean, I, I'd be shocked if that doesn't happen, but, you know, your mileage may vary. I think there's less of a plan and more of just rats in a trap. This is just human nature. And you see this throughout history, not just in terms of regime failures and economic crises. That people will keep doing the same things just because it keeps them above water or in power or from starving for a little bit longer, even though those things are not part of some greater plan. They're just not. It's a totally different note. I, I just read a book, uh, recent history book, long history book about the uh, wars of the in the late first century of the Jews against the Romans and how the Romans you know, destroyed the temple and so on. This is a fairly well-known story. But the, one of the problems that the Jews had was they didn't have a plan. Like their plan was to like go back into all their different towns and cities and wait for the Romans to come and knock them over and kill everybody. I mean, that's not a great plan. And but they kept doing it over and over until they decided like we'll have our more or less last stand at Jerusalem. And that didn't work out either. So, I mean, it's not because they, and they're obviously not stupid. They just but people are trapped, trapped in this mindset and they just keep doing what, what they think you know, they've been doing, hoping that to spin the wheel forward a little bit more. Yeah, one of one of my favorite examples is during the Mexican Civil War. I believe the general. It's been so long. Or excuse, yeah, the Mexican Civil War, the Mexican Revolution. It's been so long since I studied this, over probably a dozen years. But um, the detail I remember though is that machine guns were, were just introduced to Mexico at the time, and uh, you know the the revolutionaries were had never fought against machine guns before. Many of them had never even seen them. So how did they deal with it? Well, they dealt with it by just repeatedly sending wave upon wave of cavalry charge into the machine gun fire and they just got mowed down and um it definitely feels like that's happening sometimes yeah um same more poignant example but same same principle one of the things you say in your essay is um the regime is very reactive and i actually while i do think there is a plan uh i i do think it's also very very reactive i mean you can look you can look at something they do and see how it was a contingency upon something. And then that was a contingency on something else. And you could keep going back. Um, you I, just... have a plan. I mean, I think I have all sorts of plans, but like I got plans. I got plans right, to right, right. Rich, live forever. <laughs> you know, Hope is not a plan, as they say. Well, I meant to bring this up in the beginning. Um, maybe we can take a really quick uh, 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 tangential divergence here off topic just for a second it's it's actually kind of related uh you just reviewed one of my favorite people's ever his book uh the raw eggs well the raw egg nationalist book the eggs benedict option yeah. um 
uh, Raw Egg's been on the show twice. I hope he comes back many more times. He's put me in man's world as well as he's put you in there. Um, I love the book, and uh, I think it's the best work done on The Great Reset yet. And when I say that they have a plan, the plan I'm talking about is The Great Reset. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you think of the book? Why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't we take a quick moment if you're okay with that? Well, yeah. So, I mean, only part of, of Raw Egg's book relates to the, to the Great Reset. Much of it is obviously a focus on nutrition and a plan for the future. One of the things I particularly like about the book is that it offers a concrete plan for the future, which I think is somewhat lacking on the right. People need to have plans or at least advice for the future. But specifically what he talks about in his framing, where he talks about the Great Reset, I address this a little bit in, in the fragility piece. So there is some overlap, which is that this... Well, there's no doubt that there's a plan by the regime, by which I mean the Western regime, which is dominated dominated by but not limited to America. They want to do all of these things, which involves centralized control, the digital panopticon, um, the uh, you know, population control of various kinds, basically control. Uh, but the people who are kind of ascribed as the actors in this, like Klaus Schwab, as I said in my fragility piece, if you sent everyone associated with the World Economic Forum to be a monk in Antarctica forever, then it would make no effect whatsoever upon this kind of plan. Was this this set of plans to uh, create a centralized regime control is is more inchoate? Is more inchoate. Um, so the uh, it's an emergent property of the, of this this kind of decayed and insane ruling class. So. They also have kind of broader plans to engage in transhumanism and modifications of the human body and so on and so forth. I don't dispute that these plans exist. I don't think there's any chance whatsoever that they can be accomplished simply because of the lack of competency and lack of technological progress. These things are just aspirations. And in the here and now, they're used to control and abuse people on a fairly significant scale. Uh, you see this a lot in some of the protests in Europe and so on. People are complaining about specific uh, attacks upon their livelihood and so on, or the Canadian truckers. But that's there's nothing new about that. I mean, there's there's no it's just the, the same nasty people doing the same nasty things and labeling it the Great Reset as though it's some kind of wonderful utopian plan. It's just garden variety leftism in its failing stages being applied in a kind of inconsistent and stupid fashion. Well said, man. Nobody can. I, I meant to bring up another thing, too, is you're a really good writer and uh, you put things very well. And I like that. I, you, that's very well said. Um, yeah, I'm not really going to refute that. Um, I do think when I talk about, about a plan, though, I think a lot of the things they talk about in the Great Reset are like window dressing. You know, it's like, well, put this in, too. Well, we're going to also have, you know, they're going to eat crickets and we're going to have you know, all these <laughs> all these crazy things. But um for the most part, I think what they want to do is take control of the con- of the economy and have a have a have some some sort some sort of a I don't want to call it a planned economy, but like a state run economy, like what you saw in uh, with COVID. Oh, you know what? That brings up something you said in the article that I wanted to refute, actually. Okay. So we'll we'll talk about this now. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, one of the things that happened during the COVID pandemic is the 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 uh, the lockdown restrictions put a lot of people out of business, and then they got fed on you know life support by government bailouts, and then the government bailed out the whole entire economy. And there are some other economies that I think are basically ready to topple and 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 uh, going to need government bailout, like the healthcare system in particular, 
is just been massively, massively destabilized by this. It was already in trouble. Um, so the repercussions are still being felt. This is this is their way of taking over the economy in, in a way. But my question to you, though, and the thing I want to refute to you is, is, you know, like I said, when I was talking about the regime being strong, I meant their ability to assert their control, assert control over the nation. And you kind of dismiss that by saying like, oh, well, they didn't really hurt too many people. They they said they were going to do a bunch of stuff. Not that you dismissed the people that were hurt, but you said it wasn't too widespread. And you said um, they said, oh, we're going to make you have a vax mandate and um, we're going to shut everything down. But it didn't really last that long. It didn't really go anywhere and everything kind of went back to normal. Do you think I characterized your argument? Well, more aggressively. Aggressively put than I, than I put it, uh, but I mean, general, my point was that the that I did not think that you, again, I don't have your original words to hand, but the claim that the uh, ability to impose COVID restrictions showed that the uh, the regime was capable of implementing very specific things. In fact, I should probably say because that was in response to uh, to one of a a specific um, kind of, since I listed out uh, by number the things I disagreed with. This is uh, to support my claim that um, that the regime is strong, even though fools and non-entities are its front men. I said public conformance to regime dictates during the plague was not nearly as universal as some seem to think. In many areas, there was minimal compliance with those dictates. Uh, regime censorship and blanketing propaganda hid much of this, but that only makes non-compliance stronger evidence of regime inability. Moreover, most of the regime reactions to the Wuhan plague were not centrally and coherently imposed, part of some regime plan being executed, but ever-changing and often contradictory demands. The result of group hysteria by feminized decision makers exalting the false god of safety at all costs. So this is in support of my claim that the re- regime is uh, not strong behind the curtain, even if people who are stupid are kind of the, the front men. Yeah. Okay. I see. I, I don't know if you can, if you can really make that claim, the not, not the part about the front men and behind the curtain, but the part that uh, the, that's the exact passage I had in mind. So that's impressive. You pulled that up quickly. Um, the regime wasn't, the, uh, Okay, so first of all, let's start off by saying this: like half the country just went along with it, at least, right? That's right. Sure, but the, 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 this is factionalism. One of the problems, as a political matter, is factionalism in America, and that relates to the election, which is a different discussion. But but the half of the people who went along with it are the people who are already supporters of the regime or loosely affiliated with those people in one way or another. So yes, half the country went along with it, but that's not evidence of regime strength. It's evidence of the regime. Uh, having its faction. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. But then the people who didn't go along with it were made to suffer in certain ways. I mean, yes, people did lose true. their jobs, people did lose their businesses, people did get the vaccine that didn't want it. Uh, people were furloughed at work. The um, you know the the media really went ballistic. Like they all, they're just the most <laughs> uh, histrionic thing. I can't even I can't even read the media anymore. Um, they were talking about how there's going to be all these shortages, but it was felt. The shortages were felt and the economic ripples uh, are real and they are affecting people. Um, yeah. Well, I say that. I mean, I say no doubt many were forced to dance to the regime's tune, 
with respect to the Wuhan plague. So I don't I don't deny that. My point is that that's not a, not a evidence of the regime being not right. right. Well, m- my point is that even though there's some truth to what you're saying, and that and that a lot of this stuff was just sort of uh, window dressing or not window dressing, excuse me, it was just sort of like bluster. Um, j- what they did was still like a full spectrum deployment of this this whole like covid pandemic pandemic plan um which i think shows that it actually i i i think it shows strength of a certain kind but it also refutes one of your other points where you talk about nicolo soldo and his whole turbo america thing and and the heading you have is uh, the regime is strong because the ruling class is united i think that i, that. I disagree that, that's my point. Yeah, and let's get into that. So, and I'm bringing it up now because I I'll, think... I want to finish on the COVID thing real, real quick, if, if we can. I mean, what, one of... Okay, well, I was going to... Okay, all right. Okay, if you want to tie them together, that's fine. Go, I was go going to tie them together, yeah. Yeah, go for it. I was going to say that the fact that even if people resisted and even if people didn't comply, that doesn't necessarily mean the weak, the, the, the regime is or is not fragile. Um, but it does show that the the ruling class is united because everybody got on board. It was really just the grassroots people and like, you know, right wing journalists who didn't go along with it. The The ruling class was united in the pandemic rollout. Uh, they, they did pretty much all go. And they also go along with the whole global homo thing. You bring up global homo in the essay. The, um, they go along with like the woke marketing and the woke branding as well. Um, but as far as COVID goes, like no one really spoke out against it who were part of the regime. I mean, can you think of any like mainstream legacy politician? I don't mean like a new upstart like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I like. I'm not insulting her. But other than people like her, like did anyone go against it? Did any entrenched put did Mitch McConnell go against it? Did did Nike go against it? You know? Did I, any I, big news outlet go against it? Not to sound like Bill Clinton, but that depends on what the definition of it is. I mean, you talk you talk about the 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 pandemic, but I think that's a misnomer. And I understand there are people who think that there's this plan, and that you know, that Klaus Schwab, who really is smart, even though everything he says sounds stupid, uh, has this big plan. He sits under his mountain bunker, and he's going to do this. But if you sat down and you looked at the actual rules the regime put out during the Wuhan plague, which I refuse to call a pandemic, it's um. It there, it's completely incoherent. It's changing from moment to moment. As I said in my piece, much of it is dictated on a local level by Karens, by feminized decision makers. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems in in the Western world today, which is that hysterical women are allowed to dictate public policy. And you see, saw that very distinctly here. That is, yes, some of that was amplifying what they heard from people who they regarded as their social superiors in Washington or in big cities or what have you, but there wasn't any plan. And in, in the sense of a uh, a coherent plan to do A, B, and C in order to accomplish X, Y, Z goals. Yes, there was a plan to maintain control, to make sure that the right people who are in their parasitical jobs that are necessary as a result of elite overproduction, like Peter Turchin talks about, maintain those jobs that the, uh, the the lower classes don't get uppity. Those things are generic regime goals, but there's no more coherent coherency or consistency to that. So my point about the regime 
being united isn't that the regime isn't united. I think it generally is united. It's that that being united doesn't allow them to execute any actual plans competently. It's an incompetent uniting rather than a competent. Yeah, lemming. What was your what was your really awesome line? Well, about you... to have the lemming so united as well. Yeah, that was a good that was a good statement. But so okay, so you know whether or not the COVID pandemic response was cooked up a year before, uh, and and rolled out uh, according to you know a, a preset of plans, or it was incoherent and sort of post hoc, right? Either way, my point is simply that once they settled on something, once they came to something somewhere in, I guess, March, maybe of 2020, then everyone went along with it. And I think that shows a sign, some sort of regime coherence and strength doesn't mean they can withstand a crisis, although some might argue that that was a sign of, that is an example of them withstanding a crisis. But I have a better example than that, that I'll... Deploy in a moment, because uh, you, did you want to say more about the no, pandemic, no, I, or do you feel you got no, to I it? Right. I mean, I, I think it's an impossible question to answer precisely because we're dealing in in you know hindsight hypotheticals to, to some degree. I mean, but I think both both views have merit. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not. You know, I'm not going to kick a dead horse here, but I'm <laughs> not. I'm not wedded to the idea that the that the the pandemic and the response was cooked up in a boardroom. However, if one wanted to make that argument, there's a <laughs> way more circumstantial evidence that connect the dot, the dot connecting that I'm comfortable ignoring. But I talked about that in my, essay, my episode with Ren, uh, Roy National. So if anybody's interested, go check that one out. I, so I, look, I, I tend to listen to it. I didn't realize you had one. I, I need to oh, that's okay. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. I, last thing I want to do is I'll, I'll bully my listeners into listening to essays, but not my guests. Um, <laughs> listen, can, can we do this if it's not too much of a of a abrupt shift in the flow of the conversation? Can I list the nine headings you have for examples of people saying the re, the regime is strong because of X? And then uh, I think a couple of them we can address very briefly because I agree with them. Um I want to get back to some of the other stuff we already touched on, though. So okay. just quickly, we'll we'll run through the first one that we already talked about, which is that the ruling class is united. Therefore, the regime is strong. Uh, number two, and this is my point, although you phrased it in a way I probably wouldn't have phrased it, but it, it's it's fair, though. You said the regime is strong behind the curtain, even though fools and non-entities run it. Number just, three, I'm setting these up as things I disagree with. All, all nine of Yes, let's make that clear. Yes, um, these are other people's arguments. Right, which I for the regime. Right, right, okay. Uh, number three, this is a great one to talk about, but uh, no alternative to liberal democracy. This is the Francis Fukuyama art, uh, argument. His article came out after you wrote this article. His his uh, The Atlantic article, have you read that yet? I saw references to it, but I couldn't read uh, Yeah, it is... It is just drivel. I mean, it's just absolute, <laughs> absolute propaganda. Glad I didn't read it. Yeah, it's just absolute propaganda. Um, he That man has fallen very far over his path of his career because he's got good work in his earlier. But anyway, we'll get back to Fukuyama. I want to talk about him. Number four, um, the regime is strong because they have so many economic resources. <laughs> Number five, uh, they have tech, uh, enough tech to suppress dissent that they won't fracture, that they won't be weakened. Number six, they're strong militarily. Number seven, they have soft power. 
the regime is strong because they have soft power. Number eight, they have a uh, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. The regime is totally hollowed out. And I guess you're saying they're ready to topple at any moment. Is that the argument there? No, the, the argument is that, it, well, uh, that's actually my shortest section. I don't really have a long argument, but people will frequently say there's a great deal of ruin in a nation, quoting Adam Smith. The implication being that no matter if things are bad for the regime or for the populace as a whole, things can get a lot worse before anything notable happens. And my point is, A, Smith was talking about economics, uh, not the entire uh, kind of full spectrum weakness that we see in our society. Um, and uh, things are vastly worse than uh, than Smith would have countenanced uh, to win, you know, with saying that. I mean, just, just because like, you can always make the argument up until the very end for every regime that collapses that things are very strong. And people were making that argument about the Soviet Union in 1989. I mean, uh, it's famously, and I mentioned this in, in the piece, the CIA uh, was saying in the 1980s how incredibly strong and growing stronger the Soviet Union was. Robust economy, strong politically. You know, just, and I'll just, you know, it's a, it, 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 it always seems for a regime that's going to collapse, not always, but much of the time that it's, it's strong right up until it doesn't. Yeah, I almost wonder, though, was the CIA saying that because uh, <laughs> their job security depended on the, the CIA growing and being strong, you know? <laughs> oh, I, there is, is argument to be made for that. But given the kind of, you know, myriad failures of United States intelligence services over the past 50 years, yeah. uh, say just, you know, being wrong is a, close, a simpler explanation. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Okay, the last one here. Uh, the people are fat and lazy and nobody will complain. Uh, I call this the bread and circuses argument. Uh, 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 people, um, uh, people love their. Well, yeah, I guess you already said this. People love their net, Netflix and their video games. Now, some of these I think we can we can skip. We can we don't have to get into them really because partially because we agree and we also covered them. The economic resources, uh, the the tech to suppress dissent. Actually, this is kind of interesting though. One of the things you say in your essay is that they're always talking about the tech that's gonna come out. They're always talking about stuff that's like just around, uh, just over the horizon. I mean, remember when they cloned a sheep in like 1995, yes. and but nothing's being cloned now, and nanotechnology was going to do all sorts of things, but there's nothing on the market with nanotechnology. I am a big fan of tech. I mean, the first pillar of foundationalism, my applied political philosophy, is space. I'm a big fan of space, I'm a big fan of technology, not transhumanism, but technology properly managed and so on. But it is sadly the case in my age, which is 54, that I have been promised uh, stuff my whole life and it has never arrived. And you even in, I mean, you're younger than me, but like the, you see nanotechnology is a good example, but literally everything that's been announced with great fanfare in my lifetime uh, has never come as a big technological advances has never actually arrived. The best example of this to me, and I've written a couple of pieces on this, I, I wrote a review of William Gibson's Neuromancer in which I complained about this, that the stem cells, the entire 2004 presidential campaign was run around how stem cells would literally cure essentially all diseases within a few years and the Republicans were going to stop us from, from having this. And literally nothing has come of that. I mean, it's it's completely bizarre. Like, So I've come to realize that part of it is probably unavoidable. I think much of it, however, is, is social and cultural. There are no technological advances, and we are going backward. And my argument in this piece is that the 
digital panopticon controlled by the regime of us through technology relies on technological advances that will never arrive. 1000% agreed. I love the way you said that. Uh, an essay and a podcast episode on my blog called Event Horizon, they both have the same name, are about exactly this. I totally agree with you. I, I think we've like fallen into this black hole or this dark morass of like cultural and technological stagnation. But we can get um, out of it. We just need to rework things a bit. Yeah, we can get out of it. And, you know, I think we need a Caesar to get us out of it. Uh, somebody like yeah. Elon Musk. <laughs> um, uh, uh, he's the leading candidate right now. <laughs> yeah, he's the leading candidate right now. Oh, oh, but, you know, you said something that really struck me. You said you've been promised technological advancement your whole life and you never got it. That's absolutely correct. I have the same impression but I've also been hearing about collapse my entire life and we've never collapsed. And that's part of the reason. You've really been hearing it. Well, how, how old are you? Well, I'm 43, but I, but I, you know, I've been, uh, I've been deeply steeped in the conspiracy theory uh, community since the, the mid nineties. And they've been talking about it ever since then, but it, it broke out into the mainstream. Um, I don't know. I can't, I, if I think about it, I can come out, I can come up with when, but the whole survivalist thing and, and the preppers and all that, but um, I agree. I've been a prepper my whole life, like since the 1980s, uh, when it, the threat was nuclear war, but I will say, and it is very sad to me. And I say this to my children all the time. It is impossible to convey to someone younger than me, how optimistic, hopeful, and bright the 1980s were in a way that is completely alien to today. It is it is so bizarre. That is, I mean, I'm sure there are problems and what what have you and political fights and so on, but um that that spirit is completely gone. I I think it's I mean, your mileage may vary. Everyone's experience is different. I'm not sure that people have been talking about collapse for well, I mean mid nineties, yeah, I'd say since since the mid nineties, certainly people have been talking about collapse, but but more since like the early 2000s i agree and there's that book collapse uh the michael rupert i don't do you remember uh, that no yeah. I, I remember that vaguely but i i did not read it but it, um I, I remember when i was a small child my mother reading me a book from the school library i must have been eight so it would have been 1975 and it talked all about fusion fusion was yep. just Ten years away. I mean, I'm like, oh my god, here we are. And I used, to, I still hear the same stuff. It's, it's so annoying to me that 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 I hear the same stuff now, and it's all just, just you know, now, now it's just, it's like, it's like the boogeyman. It's like you know, a story told to children in order to keep them, keep them in line or something. I and mean, we need to get back to like actual accomplishment. This just winds me up no end. Sorry to get all worked up. No, it's great. I absolutely agree with you. But the thing of it is, is like. Okay, so we've only been hearing about collapse since the mid '90s, but there's, or excuse me, the mid 2000s. But there's always been this calamity, uh, this revelation, apocalypse is just around the corner. And before it was uh, nuclear, and and then there was going to be like peak oil, and even in the '70s during the oil embargo, that guy, I think his name is William Howard Kunstler, who uh, is, yeah, this is totally. He wrote, he wrote a book, World Made by Hand. He was yeah. talking about peak yeah. oil. Like mid 2000s i remember that guy so the, if it's not collapse it's always something it's global warming the world is going to be submerged under the ocean it's always the, the the sky is falling it's always the sky is falling narrative but here i am talking to one of my intellectual idols who is arguing that the regime is on the brink of collapse <laughs> because right. they're fragile which right i mean uh, i mean 
this is always the problem with talking predicting the future. I, I agree that the Americans in particular have a long history of predicting catastrophes, millenarianism. I mean, the classic example is the Millerites, who are this sect in the mid-19th century who, who their leader predicted the world would end and all they sold all their possessions and waited for the second coming of Christ on some hilltop on the date appointed. And, you know, surprise, surprise, Christ did not arrive. Uh, and so uh, that's its own. But there's many examples of that in, in American history. So maybe one could make the argument that all of these discussions or my discussions about regime fragility are merely modern day descendants of the Millerites, you know, less Christ, more computers. But uh, I don't think so. I think my argument would be the historical argument, which is that all regimes come to an end. So we're just waiting to see when. Well, I'm not I'm not predicting something as dramatic as the end of the world. I'm predicting the end of the regime, which is 100 percent guaranteed. The only question is when. Well said. And I agree, obviously, definitely agreed. And in fact, I am open to the possibility that that's going to happen in the next 10 years. Um, so listen, I want to I want to take a break and sort of uh, get to to, uh, you know, the the points here and things like that. Um so why don't we why don't we end this section of the show on one last point of mine, which is one of the main things that's been really stuck in my craw. You say the the regime's ability to withstand a crisis, but I see the Trump administration as a crisis for the regime. Probably the biggest crisis, definitely the biggest crisis in their mind. Not necessarily objectively the biggest crisis but clearly the biggest crisis in their mind. Much to the dismay of the American people, they I think they weathered that crisis uh, quite effectively. And they did so the same way that, that they rolled out COVID, the COVID response, which is that all outlets of the regime acted in tandem to oppose Donald Trump. And you, you talk about this, about you say some of the, the lawsuits against them never went anywhere. But I might counter that by saying, well, maybe they were never meant to really put him in jail because maybe they're not as stupid as we like to think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pardon me. And that perhaps they know if they put him in jail that they would then have real civil unrest under that. Not not like January 6th, which was fake. Yeah, that's uh, actually it, it, casting Trump as a crisis is actually a really interesting point. Um, my, my kind of I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but a crisis for the regime, I mean. Uh, my first order response to that is that, yes, for the re regime, Trump was a crisis, but he's a crisis of a different quantum than I'm really talking about, because he's somebody, he's political opposition that they can defeat by simply throwing sand in the gears and slowing everything down politically that he wants into kind of swimming in molasses. It's not a crisis in the sense of something has to be done in order to prevent the people from becoming enraged, like an economic crisis where people can't feed themselves. Are. So while it is a crisis in the sense of like something has to be done, it's not quite a crisis in the same sense I'm talking about, which is an ec truly external force outside of kind of political activity within the constitutional American frame. Um I'm not sure that's an entirely satisfying distinction, um, but that's my kind of initial reaction. That's a good answer and fair enough, but I don't think it um, totally addresses why I think my example is relevant to your argument, because Trump could, you know, if the worst nightmares of the regime came true and Trump became dictator for life or something like that, then the regime would be 
effectively over. And it would have it would have had the same end result of the type of crisis you're talking about. I think that I think uh, there's a lot of truth in that. I think the everyone says this, this is by no means an original thought, but Trump was in many ways his own worst enemy. You know, his characteristics that allowed him to rise to the position he did uh, also were ultimately debilitating. And they opened the door for someone else like him, but with more discipline. Again, this is not exactly an insight, but the um, I think that now someone like Trump coming along could not be as easily defeated if he was disciplined. Trump just could his inability, his inability to be disciplined, his inability to judge character, his surrounding himself with sycophants and so on, um, it made it much easier for the regime to to deal with him. That's not really germane to your point, though, which is that arguably Trump was a crisis for the regime. Well, you you make a good point too, because my argument is that they they handled him so effectively by you know perpetuating a total media blackout on him, suing his arguably his biggest uh biggest uh mouthpiece oh, well i guess you could say it's bannon or the other the other possibility is alex jones suing him for like what one quarter of the yeah, national right. gdp right. yeah <laughs> so, i mean that's that, that that's a complex technical legal thing they didn't yeah, they, they, this punitive damages um should not be i mean i used to be a lawyer many years ago but punitive damages should not be allowed punitive damages only work that is damages not assessed as actual damages but as punishment only work in a homogenous society when you have a society that's driven by factionalism punitive damages are merely a tool for whichever person is in the ascendant and well those will obviously have to be ended in the new regime but sorry i'm getting off topic I was no 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 it's a, it's, it's a great winding myself up about punitive damages no, that's a great point, but I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm only bringing it up because I'm saying that I think they did that to him because of his support for Trump, and they don't want Trump to have that resource again in 2024. Um, so I consider those to be, if not a sign of the regime's strength, a sign that Trump was a crisis. Um, but I, anyway, the point I'm trying to make to your point is that uh, I agree Trump had so many faults that he could have potentially you know, weathered everything they threw at him and uh, remained in office, but he didn't. And that debate is for another time. So if you're okay, taking a break, I need a drink of water. Um, we'll, we'll have a little music and come back. And um, I have a whole itinerary for part two. Okay, sounds good. All right, thanks. I'll be right back. Okay, sounds good.
Okay, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. I'm here with Charles Haywood, and we are dis- we are discussing the fragility of the regime. Now, we made the distinction that I was talking about the regime's ability to, uh, I like to say, re-entrench itself because uh, uh, Trump disrupted the 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 run they had going there for for a couple decades <laughs> with uh, first Reagan, and uh, you could take it back even farther. But I like to see Reagan and Bush. And then his son as like one long thing. And, it, you know, I have a whole opinion about Clinton that we won't get into that. Um, I feel like he was sort of brought to heel at some point in his regime, the whole or in his tenure, excuse me, the whole Monica Lewinsky thing. And he now, you know, he ended his his career buddying around with uh, Jeffrey Epstein and stuff. So it, and then they wanted to have it part two. They wanted they were trying to build a dynasty in 2016 with bush jeb bush versus hillary clinton i mean i couldn't i was just so it was so absurd and i was so offended um and i was glad you know i didn't support trump in 2016 i came around to him by the end of 2019 is when i really started to come around to him but i was glad that he broke the back of the regime Mm -hmm. and i was even calling it the regime back then uh because he got those two out of there and they, they were both just terrible um but so we agree that there's a regime. Uh, we seem to agree that they have a certain amount of strength, although I think they're stronger. You think they're weaker. But the fragility, we still have to convince the listener of the fragility. Now, I think I think number two is the greatest point to talk about to try to prove the regime's fragility in the sense that I, uh, you say the argument is that the regime is strong behind the curtain, even though fools and nine entities uh, run it, uh, are the face of the regime, excuse me. I should think that if the regime really was fragile and not able to weather a, a crisis, it would be because they, it was filled with complete incompetent, know-nothing morons who can't get anything done and that they wouldn't be able to handle the crisis and it would just collapse. That's basically your argument, right? More or less. I would add bells and whistles, but yes, I, I think the regime is largely filled with incompetence and to the extent there are not incompetent people in there, they are not in position of authority or otherwise neutered. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we can add a couple other things, too, but let's stick on this for a moment, because when I wrote my essay sort of refuting what you were saying with Oren. All right, folks, a little technical difficulty here. Anyway, I was trying to make the case that the regime had one unbroken reign of rule for decades that Trump came along and interrupted. And now the regime is up and running again. And, you know, uh, Mr. Haywood, I would love the end of this show to be like a, a prediction on your part um, that nobody will hold you to uh, what you think is going to happen in 2024. Um, will the regime keep humming on until the inevitable collapse or will we have uh, 2016 2.0? But we'll get back to that. What I was what I was getting at before, though, is that if the regime is fragile, it would be because the people running the regime are total incompetent, know nothing, uh, people who just have no business being in governance and totally sycophantic, as we were talking about in part one. And uh, number two was strong. The regime is strong behind the curtain, even though fools and non-entities are its face. I don't know if there was going to be evidence that the regime was fragile in the way you define it. It would be because of this, in my opinion. I don't know if we can say that it is. You say that it is. And I think I think it's worth exploring, but I'm not totally convinced so if you'd like to make the case, uh, go ahead and then we'll... Yeah, this is related to uh, Soldo's claim, Nicolo Soldo's claim, 
which is that, and I, I think I took your piece, which I was riffing off of in this section of my piece, to say that, yes, some of the people you see uh, put to the front, the front men, as I call them, are incompetent clowns, but behind the scenes, there's strong incompetent people. And Soldo, this is the entire crux of his Turbo America thesis, which is that, yes, it seems that the, that the America is run by a senile president and these, these clowns, but really these people who he just can't name, who are super competent, are running the United States government and the regime more broadly as a unitary entity, which is achieving uh, long-term detailed plans, executing them around the globe with great success and you know, no failures. And it's just awesome. Uh, in terms of not awesome, dislikes it, but it's well, a, powerful, right? The, it, it, for example, is simultaneously executing detailed plans to de- destroy both Russia and China, and to bring uh, make Europe an economic satrapy of the United States. I mean, I, I, I think that the evidence speaks for itself, which is that, and I the example I give is that any plan that is announced by the regime is always a total failure. And what Soldo is doing, and I, I think you gave less detail on this, so, but, so I'm not necessarily levying, levying this claim for you, but what Soldo is doing is saying, well, this looks like it was a success for the regime. So therefore, it must have been exquisitely planned by people I can't name and have no idea who they are somewhere in the regime. I mean, that's just basically, frankly, not I, I like Soldo, but it's basically silly, especially when the the plans that are announced are 100% of the time total clown disasters. Well, I only take issue with part of that because they are absolute clown disasters for sure. But I do think, and this is what I kind of uh, hinted at this earlier, I do think you unfairly dismiss some of these arguments with with hand-waving when you really can't do it, or at least... At the very least, you got to come on a podcast and 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 you know uh, examine this and dig down and elaborate a little bit. So, okay, so you just sort of characterized his argument, which I I agree with. Uh, you and other people who I know online, when they read my article, said I sound like I was making his point, and I hadn't read that article of his. I've read him before, but not that. Went and read it, and I agree with him, and I agree with your characterization of him. What I don't agree with is that there are um, like Wizard of Oz characters characters behind the scenes who are these masterminds. You know, I like to talk about this uh, proverbial like smoke filled room, of big <laughs> fat cats with cigars and whiskey planning all this. I don't think that that's it at all. But people like to make a caricature of this argument. And I said before that I'm into conspiracy theory. So people write people like me off. But the thing is, is the regime tells you all the time that these people exist. And the regime tells you these people exist and shows you what they do. And and I can give you two wonderful examples of this. An article written in NPR, very long article, which turned into a book called The Deep State, which was written in like 2015. And then another book that just came out, which I haven't got a chance to read yet, which is called like How the Deep State Saved America. So what I'm talking about and what Sold was talking about, whether he realizes or not, or whether he, he might not even agree with me, but what he's he's talking about, the deep state and the deep state is not the characterization that the media gives it. And I'm saying this as much for the listeners benefit as for yours. The deep state is not necessarily 
what the media says it is, what the media says the conspiracy theorists think it is, which is the smoke-filled boardroom. The deep state are unnamed, unelected, boring, uh, you know, technocratic day-to-day guys who run the bureaucracy of the state who just go to their day jobs, their nine to five, and they collect their pension at the end of their career, who you never see on TV, you never vote for, you never know their names. They're the ones writing the policy. They're the ones getting th- things done. And when you read the article, the deep state from NPR, which did you read that or the book? Yeah. Yeah. And what? So he gives a bunch of great examples. One of the really good examples he gives is that during the time of like uh, the 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 government wasn't able, the Obama government wasn't able to like, well, it was because of the Republicans to raise the debt ceiling the, the there was this deadlock this gridlock in washington and they were talking about how everything was gridlocked and nothing was getting brought up to speed at the same time the nsa built this like massive data gathering facility in utah which is still running to this day so his argument was like sure it looks like they're gridlocked it looks like they can't get anything done that gets all the headlines that's a sign of dysfunction but behind the scenes under the surface like the day-to-day machinations of the state are being carried out just fine and money is being sent where money needs to go just fine in fact back then he gave the example of ukraine in 2014 well i i'll say two things in response to that the the utah thing is uh not a good example because the government the United government has for decades uh engaged in uh black box slush fund funding at a massive scale so which escapes the normal gridlock procedures. That is, the intelligence agencies and to some extent the military are allowed to basically spend limitless amounts of money with basically no one in Congress knowing what they're doing. So it's not really surprising that in a era of so-called gridlock, the NSA can get an unlimited budget to build data centers to screw Americans. I mean, I, I don't think that's an counterexample to gridlock as a whole. I don't, I, I, it is true that it's, that suggests that, that people are able to get things done, but I, I think that there is a deep state I don't dispute that. I, I think there is a permanent bureaucracy, and so I don't think this is this is really news. I just don't think those people are capable of executing long-range, coherent plans of the type. Yeah, but that, they don't need to, though. They only need to execute the day-to-day machinations of running, you know, administering the state. Well, that's just inertia, right? And then when Caesar shows up and just t- turns off those people's computers, then the yeah, that's it. Those people are gone. They're dead, not dead literally, but they're you know dead to the regime, and they just they just disappear. Uh, I will also say that the um, the uh, the other kind of counterexample I would give that that's inertia, and so that's in there. And then the, the other counterexample I would give is that the ever see the there so on nine eleven there was a camera crew that by coincidence happened to be with Bush, and they were around, and they later issued a documentary showing the Bush and his top decision makers talking down in some bunker during 9-11. And so in the movies, we're used to thinking of people like this, you know, they're skilled and informed and they make you know, statements and they analyze. It was a total clown show. It was like, hey, how about this? I don't know. It'd be, it'd be like basically you and my idiot cousins talking about what to do about 9-11. I mean, it was not impressive at all. And so if that's the people who are the creme de la creme of the president of the United States advisors, uh, I, I have no doubt that there are members of the permanent bureaucracy who are fairly competent. 
And I have no idea, no doubt that they can engage in activities that creates emergent property, such as you know, funneling money to help the Ukrainians uh, resist the Russians in order to help erode Russian power. I'm not saying, they, they, and I make this clear in the piece, it's not that the regime can't execute any plans. And those plans are basically uh, uh, are, um, you know, uh, emergent properties of the bureaucracy, as you say, and the plans that are more than that, plans to accomplish significant changes, significant new things, whether that's high-speed rail, the example I give in the uh, in the uh, in the um, uh, piece, or uh, back to Russia, the you can fund funnel money to Ukraine, you can build up the Ukrainian army, you can do all these things. But you can't actually defeat the Russians that way. It's it, it, those things are basically an autopilot inertia bureaucratic thing. And when, when the war comes, you get something totally different. And that's what we're seeing now, I think, in the Russia-Ukraine war. Well, I don't know. I don't know because I mean, in my essay, I give a bunch of examples of how well they're doing in Ukraine, how well our side is doing in Ukraine. They bombed the bridge that. Uh, leads to Crimea, which admittedly didn't really hurt the Russians too badly, but it was still, they carried out a strategic bombing deep into enemy territory. They uh, they bombed, uh, and everyone knows it was America, uh, they bombed the uh, the pipeline, the Nord Stream pipelines. Um, they pushed, there was, a, when I wrote my essay, they had just made like a full frontal assault that pushed Russia back, and it was Back when people listening might remember, they were talking about how Russia suddenly had to start conscripting people and people started supposedly the regime is telling us this. Who knows if it's true? They started fleeing Russia so they didn't get conscripted. That was because of a of a Ukrainian push. And then very soon before me and you recorded this, um, Russia had to abandon Kherson because mm -hmm. of a regime push. Now, I don't think we're apt, super adept in military, you know, conquerors, obviously, I think. Iraq and Afghanistan were complete debacles. And the thing is, though, here's the thing. You talk about the clown show, which there is certainly an element of that. But I argue that the regime's goals are basically accomplished when when these when these complete shit shows, if I may say so, uh, play out. The regime's goals are still accomplished. I mean, what was the regime's goal in Afghanistan? Well, who the hell knows? But they said it was to get rid of the Taliban. Uh, which they did for the time that we were there. The problem is, is that the, the problem wasn't getting rid of the Taliban. It was keeping them there after we left. So we failed at that. But the other goal, the original goal, was to kill bin Laden, which we did. This not is not... <clears throat> right, exactly. This is... This is <laughs> right. This is not uh, an endorsement of the U.S. military, by the way. And <laughs> and then in Iraq, it was to get rid of Saddam Hussein, which they did. And then and then the craziness that happened afterwards was just a contingency that I don't really think. Our... The regime goal in Iraq was to create a democracy in Iraq, a westernized, uh, fully westernized. Well, that's what they said, but you know, it was really just to get rid of Saddam Hussein. No, I saw George. Okay, w. okay. God, God rot him. This messianic impulse, and that's what they want to. You see the same thing in Ukraine. That is, the goal is to get rid of the Russian state uh, and replace it with a global homo satrapy. And so, you know, which is unlikely to happen. But on the uh, so, I, I I think that the goals are of the regime are very are weirdly bipolar. One yeah, of them, I mean, that's a good point. Is to line the pockets of the yes uh, overproduced elites 
and yes. they all keep parasitical jobs. And the other is to implement this insane ideological vision. And those things coexist relatively uneasily. I did not make this point in my article. Maybe I should have that that in itself, that bipolarity is a is a something that creates at least potentially additional regime fragility because different regime functionaries will have different emphases on the on those two things. If you're like an NGO, LGBTQ, whatever, your focus is on the ide- ideology. If you're just some guy with a Harvard degree who wants a job that pays you 150 grand, your focus is on keeping the the regime party going, and you care less about the ideology. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you you have good points, but I still I still wonder how much they really care about democracy in that sense, and how much that's just uh, that's just a veneer of what their real goals are. Yeah, sure. I mean, they don't really care about democracy in the American sense, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Democracy is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the what's colloquially referred to as global homo, which is leftist domination with an emancipatory uh, overlay. I mean, that is kind of leftism, but the I've defined this in more precision elsewhere. But uh, it has nothing to do whatsoever to do with democracy. Democracy is simply code for leftist domination and the killing of all of their enemies. I mean, ultimately. That's where the left project always ends. Well, okay. So that's 100% agreed. 100% agreed. So uh, back to the deep state real quick. Two other points I want to make. Uh, and I guess maybe this is a redundant point, but the book, that How the Deep State Saved America, was them saying that the reason why uh, Trump didn't succeed in his goals and didn't supplant the regime, the reason why they were able to kick him out, and the way their, their phrasing is democracy prevailed, Right. Of course, they always put it that way. (laughs) But the reason why the things that they say are his craziest ideas, and I think some of his best ideas, (laughs) but they say his craziest ideas, the reason he wasn't able to carry them out were because of the deep state. The deep state kept throwing up roadblocks to things he wanted to do, like invading northern Mexico, uh, 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 deploying troops to the Antifa BLM protesters in in D.C. And who knows what else? uh, The Muslim ban. They talked about the Muslim ban and how that was legally challenged and and things like that so i think if the regime really was fragile trump could have just steamrolled against all this and um before you respond to that let me just throw the other thing about this because then i want to move on to the next thing but um talking about uh deep state uh yeah i want to bring up the point of like rome and the crisis of the third century and i remember you even mentioning diocletian diocletian was like one of the most adept versatile leaders in all of world history and he was followed up pretty soon by constantine who was uh arguably even better than him or at least he was given the tools mm-hmm. to kind of uh re-entrench my my word here the the regime but they weathered their, they excuse me they came at the end of the empire weathering a long series of crises and the, the crisis what was it the, the crisis of the five emperors or however many emperors you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. There were several such interludes. Well, the, the way I learned about Roman history is that the way they were able to make it to a good emperor like Diocletian and then uh, Constantine reuniting the, the empire was because of their bureaucracy, because they their governors of the different, uh, you know, colonies or whatever, the different provinces were able to keep the day to day things going in Rome and Rome was able to to tolerate you know emperors being killed while they were while they were in the outhouse and strangled in their bath or whatever it was and military upstarts military uh, interlopers just uh-huh. murdering whoever's in charge and replacing them on the throne 
and the empire was allowed to to continue on mm-hmm. for several more hundred years after that. Um, you don't seem to think we're in that position. I'm not necessarily arguing that we are in that position. I'm using that though as precedence to show that the existence of something like a deep state is able to keep a regime going despite all of these things that we're seeing that look like total catastrophes that how could anybody weather this for another decade? Yeah, uh, there's something to that argument, but the difference between us and the Romans, I mean, leaving aside other differences like technology and speed of communication and what have you, is that their permanent bureaucracy uh, was vastly smaller in terms of its if its footprint and impact upon the daily life of people, the entire purpose of the Roman Empire was not to interfere with the people who were ruled by Rome, other than to collect taxes and prevent disorder. And obviously to also create a layer of Romanized elites who would support Rome and help assist in that overall project. That requires a relatively small bureaucracy, all of whom, uh, well, most of whom were at least reasonably competent. I'm sure there's plenty of nepotism and, and, and what have you along the way, but the, the kind of bureaucrats we see now would not have been tolerated then. The kind of people that Musk fired from Twitter who don't actually do any work, but are simply ideological ax grinders. Our deep state is vastly greater in footprint, and which also means in terms of its uh, need for resources to defeat it, and is does not have a kind of uh, you know, bind. The Romans had a cultural overlay that bound people from end to end of the empire. I think that's not true with the deep state. All it has is an ideological overlay, uh, and I don't think that's nearly as powerful for binding. But I don't dispute that a, a, a again, I, I don't dispute inertia as a continuing factor uh, for the perpetuation of a regime. And I don't dispute that the regime can, uh, like the Romans or like us in 2008, or uh, again, in some of the other possibilities you've raised, can, in fact, weather crises. But eventually, they won't. I agree that the regime is eventually going to collapse. The question is when, and I'm not going to make a prediction on that, but it sounds like you think it's imminent. Yeah, I, I would be shocked if the regime makes it past 2030. Okay. You know, I do think the 2020s is a good uh, time frame to discuss, to have this discussion about, because something, I think something, I, I let's put it this way. I do think this decade is going to determine the next hundred or longer years of American history. And that, that could just be, uh, it could destabilize the next hundred years, or it could, it could re-entrench the regime or whatever. The app. The, uh, the possibilities are myriad. Now, um, sorry if I got a little long-winded there. If I start talking about Rome, I just start to go off. You know, I get this far off look in my eye and I... <laughs> Rome is fascinating. I mean, yeah. you know, past performance is no guarantee of future results, but it, Rome has, does have a lot of lessons. Yeah, and it's fun to... It's fun. To, one of my favorite things, and one of the reasons I love Anton so much is it's fun to compare. But moving along, let's, let's address one more time uh, Strong Behind the Veil. Because and the, and the deep state argument is part of the strong behind the veil argument. The other part of that argument is the Biden cabinet. Mm-hmm. I called. I can't remember my phrasing right now. I could look it up. I called it uh, a parade of you know of 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 circus freaks, uh, which it is. I mean, um, Rachel Levine or Levin is 
Is he a member of the cabinet? Is he is he the head of the HHS? You said one of your arguments was that he has like a two trillion dollar budget. Not head of HHS. Somebody else is he's um, surgeon, not surgeon general. He's well, in the HHS. Not head of HHS, but he's somewhere in the HHS. The head of HHS is somebody different. Okay, so he's not in the cabinet, but but no. he's high he, he's high he, up there. He's put forward because he has an ideological edge to him. Well, and I, I, I said, and I think I actually think I overstated this. I think it probably should have been elaborated on more. But I said people like him are only there to virtue signal to the woke. <laughs> that is an element. I don't think it's the only element. Uh, but still, the cabinet, the cabinet still looks pretty bad. And um, outside the cabinet as well, like you have this Katenji Brown woman. Is, is that her yep. name? Something like that. Uh, you have the the cross dressing uh, nuclear head of nuclear waste disposal. Yes. Uh, you have Pete Buttigieg, who's completely, completely not equipped at all to deal with like the Department of Transportation. How that one happened is still baffling to me. Uh, I, I think, that, I mean, the, the, well, however you pronounce his name, the uh, he, he's clearly being groomed as like they want him to be like Obama. But I mean, you know, he's yeah. not as smart as Obama, which is a problem for him. I think his ship has sailed and this is just where they stuck him. They stuck him there. Now, let's talk about him just for a second, uh, but we can use him as an exemplar for my argument, because this gets back to what we talked about, how the regime can be strong and not in a decadent state on top of a, a crumbling civilization that is in a decadent state. And I use the example of Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he never has to look at a road. He never has to look at a map. He never even really has to show up to work, because I think that the people who are in the Department of Transportation uh, are able to keep it going. But I also think the the flip side to that is that what if he does show up to work? What if he does decide to take take <laughs> hold and he's completely incompetent and he makes a complete mess of it? I don't know how much the regime cares about that because the important things are taken care of. And my argument was I showed a picture of that uh, bridge that collapsed in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago. People might remember that it was in the winter. A bunch of people died. Mm -hmm. There's tons of examples like this this even happened near me a bridge almost collapsed and they had to shut it down and fix it i'm not sure this, these aren't priorities for them because these are the types of things that day-to-day -day people have to deal with but it doesn't really affect the running of the regime as a whole things like the port in la uh, i think it's in long beach uh things like the shipping lanes across the pacific um those things stay up and running and they're never really there's never really due to actions of people in the well, you would argue it's inertia right right i just don't think that there's anyone in the department of transportation who can has any impact well any but the slightest impact on either the port of long beach or much less on international shipping i just don't think they do anything for it i mean i i don't think they have any relevancy <laughs> so who runs these things like why do well, the I mean, the people on the ground, of course, right? Unions and the private companies. Is the and the people on the ground, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think the department, I think the private transportation spends their time doing things like figuring out how much, uh, quote, you know, identity politics quotas. Um, <laughs> right. I, I, I have right. familiarity, not with the department transportation, but with things like the um, EPA and so on. And those people don't do anything. I mean, they they, they, they sit around and, and they do, they, the EPA is a good example. They spend, you know, they don't work. I mean, None, no federal bureaucrat works more than like 10 hours a week. Um, the rest of the time, they just, and, and I mean, maybe there's exceptions. The people who are, that's not true. The people who are extremely ideological, like the Department of Justice, work around the clock as part of factionalism to destroy the people who are enemies of the left. 
the entire Department of Justice. Which I and this is why I love you. That is so well put. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at the, let's say the not lighter weight, but the less ideological places, like you don't go into the Department of Transportation because you're an ideologue. I mean, you may be an ideologue in the Department of Transportation, but you're not going to seek out the department. You're going to do it because you have an interest in transport or you have a degree that's related to transport or you're like your cousin has a job there, whatever. So you're going to work 10 hours a week um, and you're going to uh, what your, your your goal isn't going to be to implement no offense to your theory. It isn't going to be implement the goals of the deep state and the in the Pacific shipping lanes. It's going to be to go home early and to, you know, I mean, I, I don't think the Department of Transportation does anything. Look, I, really I, I, I understand that <laughs> argument, and I get your point, and, it, and, and, and it's true. But m- what I'm trying to say is that the reason why it doesn't matter, that, that it doesn't lend to the argument that the regime is fragile, is because it doesn't matter to the regime that the Department of Transportation doesn't do anything. Because the shipping lanes and the port are open and, and uh, b- major, you know, highways like but the major, but the, you, I agree with that that the regime finds that desirable. But the regime has no impact on that one way or the other. If you just it completely erase the Department of Transportation this evening, it would have no effect upon the the way the United States is run. Zero. There'll be no impact and, in the morning. And me and you agree. And 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 I tweeted about this, but because I got suspended, I'm a tiny account with no followers. It got no You're traction. Overturned. Yeah, I, I'm hoping uh, Elon, please bring me back. My podcast needs it really bad. Um, so I tweeted about this and it didn't matter, but I saw lots of other people tweeting the same thing. And they, oh, actually it was Nick Land. Have you read Nick Land? I have, I have his book, the, the collection Fang. of Fang Noemo, whatever. Yeah. I've not read it. You'd probably be more it. interested in his uh, blogging from 2014 on, but that's for another, that's for another time. Um, he's, he's the one who tweeted this though. And he got like thousands and thousands of likes. And, and he said that um, Elon Musk came and shows that you can just you can just axe ninety percent of the workforce in one day and leave yeah. a shell of ten percent and keep running, and that's what needs to happen at the federal government. I totally agree. I mean, drain the swamp. I, I had my first uh, viral tweet uh, the other day. I did a thread on basically analyzing Twitter's financials on how basically just firing these people makes it a profitable company. It was, it was bizarre because I got like 6 million impressions. I'm like, that's kind of, that's kind of different. You know what? I, I retweeted that. I remember now. Yeah, it was a great thread. Yes. Uh, um, but I don't, I, I'm, I don't, t- I don't have a huge Twitter presence because I don't typically offer hot takes. I basically just post my own articles and move on and retweet other people's stuff. So I'll never be like a big Twitter dominance person, but I, I wish you luck in your, in, in your return. But anyway, back to the problem of transportation. I, I I think there are elements of the uh, deep state that are critical for the regime, like the Department of Justice, which is you know simply the uh, armed wing or the the you know, legal. I mean, it's half armed. Armed means military, but the the uh, wing of the regime used to terrorize its political opponents. That's all the Department of Justice is now. Well, I mean, there's a few. A few I'm sure there's probably a significant section that prosecutes actual crimes but its main purpose is to punish non-left people who threaten the regime um and so i have no doubt there's people in the deep state there who are actively working in the way that you you say but because i think that actually argues against your argument because okay because of factionalism that can't continue on if you're the roman bureaucrat 
who is in the it, whose position is keeping other people down who know who you are you have a short shelf life because as soon as they get a chance they're going to make sure that you lose that ability permanent bureaucracy of that type continuing a regime only work if they're not political lightning rods and all the elements of the regime that are part of the ability to continue the regime, like the Department of Justice, uh, the EPA to a lesser extent, these people who are designed to advance the ideology of the regime, they're all political lightning rods. So while they have those powers now, the necessity when factionalism reaches a a, uh, fever pitch, they'll be attacked and removed from power. Fair enough. Fair enough. But the people who won't be attacked and removed from power. And interestingly enough, people should go read this original Deep State article. I mentioned it's from NPR, right? Which I'm sure everybody cringes. I, I, it's Bill. It's um. It was on Bill Moyers, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's Bill Moyers. Um, you can go to it. it's essay Anatomy of the Deep State, February twenty first, two thousand fourteen, by Mike Lofgren. Well, Mike Lofgren, who I never heard of before, and I don't know anything about him except for this article in his book. He, by the way for the listener was a Republican and was arguing uh, he part of, part of the thing. One of the things he says in the essay is, is he speaks favorably about uh, the, the rise of the libertarian party. And he makes the point that we could shed, you know, 80% or some huge number. We could get rid of some huge number of federal bureaucracy and just keep these people, these deep state people he's talking about, and they would keep the regime running. So he makes the argument back then. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, as the same debilities that, that I, I keep uh, kind of confusedly talking about. I mean, yeah. Maybe. Well, here, we'll 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 shore this up. And I, I just want to get to a couple of current events uh, real quick, because honestly, I was going to bring up um, Lloyd Austin who you named as uh, an example, because you said something like, uh, you know, you find it funny that I mentioned Anthony Blinken and Janet Yellen, but I didn't mention Lloyd Austin as if he it was so preposterously terrible that <laughs> my, it, my, my argument would instantly fall apart. Um, now, I don't know that much about Lloyd Austin. His, his, he, he's basically exact, not to overuse this word, but he's basically just a sycophant. And the reason I, you know, I'm not going to defend the guy or, attack him really although i don't like him i don't agree with him i'm just going to use him to bolster my point because uh i did look up his tenure and i noticed that two of the things he did was implement uh the vax protocols for the military and liquidate dissenters from the military you know liquidate far-right people and he implemented this whole program which i'm sure came pre-packaged and was written by who knows who behind the scenes and just delivered to him and He's the figurehead, which which is my argument, by the way. My argument is that it doesn't matter that Lloyd Austin is incompetent. Um, What matters is that somebody behind the scenes is coming up with this policy to get rid of far right people, far right and scare quotes in the military so that they can so that the fragility or excuse me, so that the robustness of the regime can remain intact, because that's one of the places where the their power will be will be challenge so you know i'm not defending lloyd Lloyd austin i don't think he's great but i do think that he's there to sycophantically carry out the regime's uh wishes and he he can there can be a rotating revolving door with most of these people 
in my opinion. Now, you you can't, and the reason why, and, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on so long. I'll, sh- I'll, I'll let you come back. The reason I wanted to use Janet Yellen, the reason I pointed out Janet Yellen, I pointed out Anthony Blinken for a different reason. But I pointed her out because you can't have a revolving door there. If you put somebody in her position who has like a totally different, let's say, Hayekian or Miltonian, uh, excuse me, Milton uh, Friedmanian uh, economic outlook, that will be very bad for the regime. They will not be able to do their schemes. They will not be able to do their economic schemes with somebody like that running the Treasury Department. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I want to, I guess I'll end on Anthony Blinken, but I want to let you respond first. Yeah, I mean, to work backwards, I think you, you, your point about the deep state uh, competency is probably strongest in the Treasury Department. I mean, it's somewhat ideological, but mostly aligned to en- enabling continued parasitism. And it does require smart people to work fairly hard within it. So I, th- I think that's actually the, probably the strongest argument for a permanent bureaucracy to prop up the you know BS uh, parasitical financial framework that the regime ha- ha- has put together. Because without that, of course, it falls over immediately. I don't think Blinken is such a great example. I mean, I agree with your analysis there, but I mean, the it's low hanging fruit to identify that people who refuse the devil's shot are in the military lean right. And it's easy to implement that plan, which- Well, that, that was Lloyd Austin. Yeah, but well, but, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, Lloyd Austin, sorry. But go on, go on. But it's easy to implement that plan. A child could come up with that that plan to implement the- factional goal of getting rid of right-wing military people and it's trivially easy to implement because it's the military right <laughs> you know that makes it easy because you it, that it's an order culture you know you you either obey or, or you're out and so it, i agree that that was well done from the regime perspective in order to achieve regime goals but as i say in my piece it's not that the regime can't do anything they're having some success against the russians i think probably less rather than more but you know we'll ask me in a year and we'll see we'll know more um but they're not doing nothing against the russians i mean they're they're undercutting other goals they're you know for example defense against china and so on but they do have the capability to execute some plans some of the time that is definitely true okay fair enough <laughs> well look um i don't know i i'm running out of steam but i got a good 15 minutes in me if you do i'm fading because this is like two hours past my bedtime yeah, I, I was going to tell the listener that we are uh, we're both morning people, and I really appreciate you doing this. Okay, so I'll skip my point about Blinken, and I'll even skip the argument about the counter elite. You can just uh, go read my article, which I'll link, and read Mr. Haywood's article, which I'll also link. Um, maybe sometime we can flesh it out because I almost wonder if my definition of a counter elite is different than yours. But let's skip that, and we'll... and we could do a part two. So you know, I would love to have you come back. I would absolutely love to have you come back. To this one, when the the people clamor for part two, we can do we can do part two. All right, all right. Well, um, I hope I wasn't too long winded, but uh, you got you got me revved up. So let's uh, no, yeah, no, we're here to hear you. We want we want to hear you. Um, so can we end on me just asking you, just uh, stream of consciousness, um, um, uh, the midterms, which I thought I thought the midterms were going to factor like so much more in our debate, but they didn't really come up at all. Um, in twenty twenty four. Just because, you know, on the time that we're recording, this will probably be about a week. This will come out in about a week, the beginning of December. So the midterms just happened and it looks like the dust has settled and everybody's ramping up for 2024. And it looks like it's going to be a bloodbath. And it looks like I'm not super optimistic, but I want to know what you think about both. Yeah, I mean, my um, I have uh, kind of a uh, 
cut and dried opinion about about the midterms. Uh, I certainly think, like everybody else, that the results were interesting. Uh, I I I think the reasons for the Republicans not doing well are probably multifaceted. There's some element of fraud, obviously, and some element of you know, quasi fraud that is manipulation by Google and so on of of uh, of people see what they see and hear and so on. Okay, fine. That's not clear. Not all that's going on. I think probably the biggest single problem is that the and I don't I, I discount somewhat. I mean, I think Trump is very polarizing, but I don't think Trump is that much of a drag. And I, I largely discount the uh, the abortion uh, stuff. I think the biggest single problem is the Republicans don't really offer anything. People aren't re- yet in true crisis mode, and to the extent they are, or they think that people want something different than what the regime is currently offering what Biden and their Democrats are currently offering, the Republicans don't really offer anything. I and mean, what's their plan to stop inflation? What's their plan to do anything different? There's nothing. I mean, yeah, and they refuse to run on the culture war issues. That is, the left is grooming your children. We will stop it. And this is how we're going to stop it, by putting the following following 300 people in jail tomorrow. I mean, that's a plan. But when you say, uh, don't you hate inflation? Vote for us. I mean, that's not a, <laughs> that's not a plan. It's just dumb. And so, in retrospect, all those things were very clearly bad. On the other hand, that's not a whole explanation because there certainly were candidates like Blake Masters who who did express clearly what they wanted to do and so on. And yeah, he probably got defrauded at some level, but you know, he didn't have a blowout win certainly. And that goes to I think what is the underlying point and in, goes into twenty twenty four, which is I touched on this earlier. We're just here in the era of factionalism. This is a divided country with two factions, and there's been many faction, similar factional struggles throughout history, starting classically with the Greek city-states, and that's just the way it is. When you have two two groups of people who are view the world entirely differently, they simply can't get along. And you, elections elections only work in or democracies only work if the people are largely homogenous already. This was one of Carl Schmitt's points, which was that democracy doesn't work to decide questions that haven't already been decided already. Um, that is existential questions. So what that means, of course, for 2024 is that the existential struggle will continue. Um, and my theory has always been from a kind of you know, um, a larger set of questions relating to the future of America, and historically, this is borne out, the left can never bear any turning back of the clock because the arrow of history points left. And if the arrow of history uh, reverses all of a sudden, that can never be permitted uh, because that is impossible and also disproves their claim and therefore is, uh, on both for both reasons, a justification for violence. So I would expect if someone like DeSantis or Trump wins in 2024, we will uh, very rapidly end up in civil war. Well, you are you are not subtle. Um, I thought I was hyperbolic. Uh, but I'm not taking anything away from you. I, I, I like being hyperbolic. I mean, this is this is what the left has always done. It'll be a war started by the left, not by the right. I mean, yeah. well, uh, the only thing I disagree with there is I don't think we're going to have a civil war in 2024. I don't think it's completely outside the realm of possibilities, but I, I would not predict that personally. I agree with everything else completely. And these are all great talking points for when you come back. Um, (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And the Trump DeSantis thing, I think it's a tragedy that they're being pitted against each other. I think it would have been great if Trump took him under his wing and maybe had DeSantis throw his weight behind him for 2024 and primed him as the 2028 candidate. But it 
doesn't look like that's where it's going to go. I, I, I will vote for DeSantis. <laughs> Say that again. Trump's not coherent enough to execute a plan. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. He He's a big disappointment in many ways for me, uh, but I still support him because uh, America first. But um, I will vote for DeSantis, uh, but I don't think DeSantis can win, though. Do you think he could win? Um, yes, I think he can. I hope he does. I hope he does. <laughs> But I do think that there there is a big problem that 40-something percent of America will always vote for, and we've seen this with Biden and then with this Fetterman person, 40 percent plus of the country will vote for whatever you know, totally brain-dead person the left puts up. They get several more to you know, double digits extra through overt fraud and control of the media and so on. One of the reasons they're so angry about Twitter um and being a potentially unbiased platform and not under the control uh so that makes it difficult to to win uh elections that's yeah. just the way it is on the other hand historically there's many examples of of uh both spain and finland and finland and 1919 are examples where the left expected to win elections for very similar reasons and lost them and immediately started a civil war yeah um so uh that's one possible path i mean i'm not advocating civil wars i don't like civil wars i think most people have no grasp whatsoever of what wars much less civil wars are actually like and they, you know they larp around how great it's going to be you know and, and these things are all false civil wars yeah. are yeah you know, the worst ever um yeah, but, I agree. Uh, but that's just what it, that's i mean i'm just telling you like what what i predict from a political angle all right. Well, look, the last thing I'll say, only because you reminded me, I want to say this earlier, uh, a, a point in your favor uh, and a uh, point that I'll make that bolsters your argument is that uh, you only w- w- when you can only put people forward, like literally brain damaged stroke patients and, and demented octogenarians who don't even know what day it is or what state they're in. That's a pretty sure sign of regime fragility, uh, in my opinion. So so that's a point for you. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Listen, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this. And you sounds like you're willing to come back. So I, I, we'll be in touch. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll keep reading the blog. Yeah. All right. Have a great night. And Astral Flight Simulation is signing off.